Hello everyone, welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a show for SaaS founders and product people. Our awesome guest today is Ashutosh Priyadarshi, founder of Sansama, a famous productivity and calendar app. We're going to talk about habit-forming products today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, the best way for SaaS founders to send onboarding emails, segment your users based on events, and see where your customers get stuck in the product. Start your free trial today at userlist.com. Hi, Ashutosh. Hey, how's it going? Doing great. We're so excited to have you here on the show. I know if at least two people who are absolutely raving about your product, including some famous names. So um, it's it's so exciting to dissect your success today. Sure. Happy to tell you guys all about it. Before we get started, tell us more about your life story and what, you, what you, you've been doing before Sansama. And I know you have like a product company that had a lot of other products before Sansama. So we'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So, yeah, Sansama and, and this company that I've been working on actually make up the vast majority of my uh, professional experience to this point. But before that, I, you know, I grew up out on the East Coast, went to college out there, studied electrical engineering. And, you know, my first introduction to kind of building products was I, my first job was I worked at a wearable startup in Palo Alto. And that's where I kind of got this itch to build products that sort of people use every day and help them become a better version of themselves. That's always been really interesting to me instead of building products that, you know, make some sort of workflow more efficient or do something faster. I was really interested in like the products that sort of augment our own sort of psychology and habits. And so that wearable was sort of the first example of that. And then Sinsama actually started almost seven years ago with me and my co-founder. We, you know, both at this point worked for a year or two outside of school. And we were kind of, I would say, saddened by the fact that we were going to spend the next 40 years like working behind a computer, potentially, and that the most effective tool we had to be thoughtful and intentional about how we were going to spend our time, which is what we we're being paid for, was going to be Microsoft Outlook or Google Calendar. And we just felt like there's got to be something better out there. And so that kind of kicked off this journey of building products to answer that question. And so, you know, seven years ago, we started on that. We raised a tiny bit of angel money while we were still in the Bay Area. And as soon as we got that first check, we packed up our cars, we moved to Oregon to this little house, and we just kind of made a home base there and started stretching that money out, basically building, launching, iterating, and then sunsetting like six different products. Depending on how you count the iterations, maybe it was seven. And so those products were kind of all over the map. Like we built something that was basically like a clone of Calendly. We built like an assistant you could CC on your email to help you schedule meetings. And the products had like a sort of wide variety of success. Like some had early users, some had early customers, some were total duds, like nobody wanted to use it. And people were like, why would you make this? You know, 
so it was a long journey. But what was really interesting is like across that sort of early five years, we got to basically look at people's calendars, talk to them about work, talk to them how they're thinking about their day, their calendars, their schedules, the tools that they use at work. And I think that allowed us to build a really deep intuition for this question about how do people kind of go about their workday. And so when it came to build the Sensama that you know today, which is sort of a daily planner that pulls together your tasks from all of your SaaS tools, it felt much more obvious to us how do we, in terms of how do we build a good experience around this problem. Can we spend a couple of minutes talking about your failures there? I, I just love lessons from products that didn't work. So what do you think didn't work that you changed and Sansama worked in return? I'll talk about the product that we built that was kind of the most successful in terms of it had some early revenue. And that was we had built a meeting documentation tool. And basically what it looked like was imagine your Google Calendar It looked exactly like that. But when you clicked into a meeting, you had this place where you could add agenda items, action items, and take notes in a collaborative way. So it was like, imagine Dropbox paper meets your Google Calendar, right? And what it came down to was that that was sort of a solution uh, looking for a problem. And the way that manifested was, you know, we had, we had customers that were as large as like 50 seats paying for this product. But when you know push came to shove and they looked at their budgets, they were just like, we're just going to go back to using Google Docs or Trello. And what was really interesting was that was one of the few times where we were like, we've literally built every feature we can think of. Like we can't think of more things that we could build to make this like a more compelling product. And that's kind of where we were like, well, we should definitely move on from this. And there's, there's not a lot of hope here. But yeah, I think in the early days, our, our biggest mistake was not really understanding the problem as well as we should have and kind of focusing too much on the solution, which I'm sure you've heard many people kind of say that. That's a very common mistake. Tell us more about the economic side of things, the monetization, because this is clearly a B2C product. Well, I would argue probably maybe since some is a bit of B2B, if you think of consultants as businesses, but still, uh, you typically deal with smaller, you know, ARPU and, uh, you know, smaller check size and, you know, problems with adoption and problems with retention and just overall higher turnaround of customers. How did your products work economically? And I'm really a bit puzzled that Sansama doesn't have pricing on the website. Is that intentional? And how does that work? Yeah. Okay. So let's start. Let's start with the last question that you asked in terms of we don't have our pricing listed on the website. It's not on the splash page, but that was only because we were still experimenting with our pricing and still are just trying to, to learn. And actually, we show you the price, I think, one, two, three times before you even create an account. So The pricing is part of the like getting to know the product flow. It's just not on the splash page as it might be traditionally. So we are upfront about the pricing. It's just in a different place. So can you say it out loud how much it costs? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, it's twenty dollars <laughs> per user per month or sixteen if you pay annually. That's so reasonable. It's not, it's not a secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That positioning for elite professionals. Did you? Do that from day one, or is it how you 
decided to position yourself later? Yeah, so we originally started, obviously, with no positioning, which was a mistake. And in fact, we even had a freemium model. And what we were seeing was we were basically struggling incredibly to actually convert anyone to paid, even though we had people who sort of relied on the product every day. And so that was the turning point for us on that was actually in YC, our group partner, Michael Seibel, he pushed us really hard to basically say, like, get rid of your freemium tier entirely and just like charge people straight up, like don't even have a free trial. And so in the very kind of early days, we switched to that model where we had only a paid plan. You had to pay up front. You had to do a call with either Travis or myself, Travis, my co-founder, in order to actually get access and use the product. So it was very much in the the style of a product like Superhuman in terms of the onboarding, the pricing, and even the positioning in that sense. And what was really interesting is that that process of forcing people to kind of have to pay up front and take a call in order to use the product helped us learn really, really fast about what people were willing to pay for, what problems they had, and it just clarified everything. And one of the things that became clear sort of in retrospect is that when you're building a productivity product, everybody wants to try your like cool new productivity product, but very few of those people actually want to stick around and pay for it. And so what becomes essential is sort of building mechanisms for qualifying customers and making sure you have the right customers. And the other thing that happens sort of downstream once people are using the product is if you have these users who are on a free tier, let's say that they end up being kind of people who are using it a a bit more casually, or maybe they're students. And then you have this other kind of cohort of people who might be professionals, right? They could be founders, product managers, whatever. The needs that they have from the product become very divergent. And the feature requests that they're going to put in are going to be very divergent. And so for us, as a sort of mechanism of of focusing on what to build as the product was still evolving, kind of filtering out the people who are never going to pay made that process a lot easier for us. As we're talking about habit forming today, and I can already see, you know, a couple tips for making people more serious as a qualification of users, uh, making the upfront payment instead of free trial definitely not freemium. So I'm, I'm liking that trend. How did you qualify the customers and what did you do with them after that? Yeah. So that kind of, you have to pay up front was like what we did for probably the first six or seven months of the product's life as a monetized product. But what we then did was we took everything that we had learned in the process of sort of manually onboarding customers one by one and we turned that into an in-product experience. And that in-product experience was sort of a guided daily planning routine. So every morning or evening, depending on how you like to do it, Sansama will actually walk you through step-by-step the process of planning out your day. So, you know, a lot of people might right now open up Google Calendar and their Trello and their Asana and like try to figure out like, what am I going to do tomorrow? Sansama's job is to actually hold your hand through that process and make it feel easy. And so that is actually what we built into our first time, into our first time onboarding. And that, um, so now the product actually does have a a 14 day trial before you pay. 
if I'm being perfectly honest, we were super resistant to the pay upfront model because I think it's crazy to just like pay for something if you don't know it's actually going to be valuable to you. And I understand why why people do it, but for us, it just felt better. It felt more honest to have a product where you could understand if it was actually going to work for you and and fit your workflow before you gave us your hard-earned money. One thing that really frustrated me in the superhuman trial is that they charged my card right after the demo ended and I didn't even like give them a yes that I'm going to use it and I didn't even like sign up for the app yet. Mm-hmm. So that felt like an invasion of you know my bank account even though like it was nothing major like some couple uh, dozen dollars or something but uh, yeah, yeah it didn't feel right agreed tell us more about that walkthrough what are the exact steps is it like a screen by screen experience that repeats every day or is it a setup experience yeah so it actually does repeat every day so even today like in my whatever, nth year of using Sensama, it still shows me the same sort of daily flow. And basically, we kind of first ask you like, okay, like, what are the things that you want to do? Like meetings, tasks, etc. And Sensama connects to, you know, your Asana or your Jira or whatever other tools you're using, and lets you kind of pull everything together. The other kind of special thing you can do in Sensama is sort of set time estimates on things. So the next step in the daily planning flow kind of pushes you to kind of defer tasks to future days or to your backlog if Sensama thinks that you have way too much work scheduled. And one of the things that we're trying to do is not just be a to-do list where you dump everything you ever think of, right? The idea is that you have a work day, it's bounded. Maybe you work eight hours, maybe you work 10, maybe you work six. But the idea is like, can we help you figure out how that stuff is actually going to fit into your workday? And then the last step is to actually help you get that stuff onto your calendar if that's something that you kind of like to do. So you can actually kind of drag and drop your tasks to the calendar and say like, hey, I'm going to work on this thing for an hour and a half after this meeting or whatever, and basically actually sort of schedule out your day. So each day kind of helps you helps you through that process. And then there's a step before that, which kind of helps you reflect on the day before and shows you. Here's where you spent your time in these different categories, et cetera. We can see how the mechanics work, but what do you do with this? Like, not everybody likes being told what to do, and not everybody, like, sticks to what they promised to their calendar project management app. I think that's the hardest part. How do you deal with that? Yeah. At the end of the day, one of the things that we, you know, believe is that the tool can only take you so far. Like you have to, you have to want to do things in a certain way, right? Like I can, I can put a treadmill in your house. If you never want to run, you know, you're not going to become a better runner, right? So certainly, and going back to one of your earlier questions, it's like, how do you find the people who are actually motivated to have this problem solved for them? And what's interesting is that most of our customers, they're not people who are like, oh, I want to do stuff, but I never get anything done. It's actually the opposite. Most of our customers are people who are like, I have so many things to do and I need help like prioritizing that, clarifying that, and sort of simplifying that down to a calmer, more focused list that I can actually get through 
and sort of end my day with a sense of feeling like, okay, I actually did as much as I could and I feel calmer, I feel focused, I feel more fulfilled. So it's, it's, there's like two different problems, if that makes sense. There's like people who like want to do stuff and never get stuff done. And then there's people who have so much to do, but they need help like bringing that into focus and, and clarifying it. And that's for us, the sweet spot. What do you do to make sure the customer belongs to that group, not the other one? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing we do is when you sign up, we kind of ask you a series of questions to make sure that the product is actually a good fit for you and that you have the problems that this product solves. You know, are you the kind of person who has tasks and a lot of different tools? Are you the kind of person who has to manage a lot of different work streams simultaneously? Do you need to wear a lot of different hats? Those are usually like really good indicators that you are the kind of person who would benefit from using Sensama. As opposed to someone who, and this is, we do have customers like this, but sort of more generally speaking, someone who's very junior in their first job and can sort of spend their week working through one Jira ticket or something like that. And they're not managing like a lot of different projects. Sensama is not a great fit for them, not because they're not uh, busy or ambitious, but just because they don't have the kind of volume and uh, diversity of different things going on in their day that paying, you know, this much would be worth it for them. And th that's kind of like the second part is that the price, I think, helps, I helps you identify customers, right? It's like, if it costs $20 a month, it has to be worth it to your sort of day to day execution of your job to be willing to pay that, right? And if, if you're making, you know, a high salary because you know your company values your work a lot you know twenty dollars a month ends up being uh an easy decision for the kinds of people who often need our product you're a relatively small team so what does your customer success division <laughs> uh, slash effort look like on daily basis and in terms of like headcount and what they do with customers on daily basis Okay, so our team right now is me, my co-founder, and then three other full-stack engineers. And we actually all pick up the customer kind of support load in terms of like answering tickets. We kind of trade off day by day who kind of takes the lead on that. Uh, and we found that that's kind of like the best way to understand our customers and actually make the product better. And, you know, that's not really a new concept. But one of the things we've, I think, done a good job of is instrumenting a lot of different touch points where we get, I think, more interesting and valuable insights into our customers. Um, and I think that that's been really like the core of our customer success strategy, if you will, right? So it's like, the first thing is like, as soon as a user signs up for a trial, we send them a 10-day uh, campaign, which kind of teaches them the, the fundamentals of how to think about work, how to, the value of sort of planning out your day and sort of why this is actually valuable to you. And what's really interesting is that we don't really talk about product mechanics there, like how do you do X in the product? We really focus on like the higher level concepts so that even if you decide after the trial that you're not going to use the product, that you come away with some sort of net sort of positive experience, some sort of learning. And that 
is probably one of our most important customer touch points because it gives people an opportunity to ask questions about how do I do this? Where do I get the desktop app? Where do I get these things? Right. And it just gets the, you know, the, the like flywheel of activation going. And then the next big touch point we have is after people actually upgrade to paid, we ask them kind of your standard sort of like NPS or product market fit style survey. And we actually read and respond to every single one of those. And what we often do is we actually offer a one-on-one -on -one call to each of those people who upgrade with either myself or my co-founder, Travis. And what we do on that call is basically take a moment to, to hear them out and understand, like, what do they do for work? Like, what is their workflow like? And then we have them share their Sansama and we see if there's ways we can improve how they're using the product to better fit their specific workflow. And this actually came out of, like I was mentioning earlier, we had that uh, onboarding call before. We've actually kind of moved it down the funnel to after people upgrade and have made it optional. So we, we still offer that, but we don't make it required. And that's probably the most interesting sort of customer success touchpoint we have in terms of the long-term value we create for customers because we can see, okay, like after, you know, 14 days of using the product, like how are people using it? Like what problems do they still have? Like what hasn't clicked yet? And that's what we go back as a product team and try to try to fix. I like that strategy when you're not offering an onboarding call per se, but rather, you know, a call when they already have been using the tool for two weeks. That's a much more interesting conversation because they have had a chance to practice it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, what happens when you onboard people like on their first day ever? As the person doing the call, you're basically going to say the same thing every time, right? You're almost like on a script to some extent. But what happens when you do it like way further down the funnel is that almost every call becomes really interesting and, and juicy because you've given people like time with this tool and everybody's like lives are different. Like, you know, we're building a tool that lets, you know, anyone from a, like a product manager to a designer to somebody who runs a like three breweries and a rock climbing gym, a way to like plan out their workday, right? So there's so much diversity there and seeing what happens along the way. I think that has been sort of selfishly the most exciting part, like to see how people do it. And also all of our best sort of product improvements have come out of just simply observing how are people using the product like that far out. Uh, and just seeing like what clicked, what didn't, uh, and how are they still using the product in a way that's suboptimal? And what can we do in the product to get them to use it more effectively? What part of your working week do you spend on the phone with, well, in Zoom, with your customers like this? For me, it's every Tuesday. So I have a bunch of calls with customers on Tuesdays and then Actually, Tuesday is for me my sort of customer-themed day. So I actually do calls with customers. And then I also, that's my day I'm responsible for support tickets. And it's also the day that I like review all of the customer survey responses that may have come in over the past week, respond to them, and just kind of see if there's anything new to learn there. And then the last little bit of things I do on Tuesdays are if there's any small feedback uh, from customers that I received that day that I can like quickly 
fix like you know everybody's like mentioning like whatever this like this thing is confusing so i can go change the copy not like an actual product feature so if there's just like little stuff so i keep that all kind of concentrated into into tuesday you mentioned that your users received that 10-day sequence and as a founder of UserList, a customer messaging tool, of course, I'm curious what happens to those emails when they land into the busy inbox of like an executive who is your target customer. Like, or is it another way? Do you display that inside your tool before they start planning their day? What's the mechanics? Yeah, so it is really just a, well, it's just an email that gets sent to their inbox but we try to give people a heads up that this email is going to come and it's going to arrive for the next 10 days. So hopefully uh -huh. it's less of a surprise. And we also, like as part of the first time onboarding, we try and figure out like when do you actually plan your workday. Um, and so if somebody says, hey, I like to plan my workday at 8 a.m., the email arrives at 7.50 a.m., right? If they say they plan their day at 7 p.m., then it arrives at 6.50 p.m. So we try to keep it sort of targeted in terms of like actually being relevant at the right time. And so, yeah, we actually, I am still to this day shocked at, shocked at the fact how well that works and how many people actually like read and respond thoughtfully to those emails. And I think I'll give you an example. We wrote some kind of drip style re-engagement emails a long time ago for like another product we were working on. And it was like, we just kind of like took the best practices of like whatever like intercom had said, like you should have in your drip emails. And I think that that was like a huge mistake. And whatever emails you're sending to your customer, they have to be like uniquely valuable to whatever it is that you are building and what your customer is trying to do. And, you know, maybe there's other people out there that, that know this, but for me, that was kind of like a big aha moment and from there on out we've been able to find like almost every email i think we send has some value to the user or the customer even if they don't click the link or use the product and it's like if you can accomplish that then that email is is not wasted in their inbox i think how do you track customer success uh, in terms of product metrics yeah so the big the big thing we focus on i mean if kind of ignore the the really kind of traditional stuff like you know obviously like revenue and like converting to paid and churn like I think those are pretty standard but I think what's what's been really interesting for us and again this goes back to like what's special about our product and what's especially hard about the type of product we're doing and what that is is getting people to activate get them to use the product and get them to have that moment where they come back day after day um, and so the kind of big metric we use is we look at kind of how many times a person actually plans their day in their first few days. And for us, there's, we can zoom in even further and there's an even more critical point, which is like, what, what is like the curve look like when people create a trial and then plan their day for the first time? And that's like the big critical conversion point. Like if we can get people to plan their day one time, like basically everything else works out down funnel. Like those are the people who are highly likely to plan their day again. Those are the people who are likely to actually upgrade to pay and actually stick around. So it's like, I actually last summer, we spent just months 
literally just looking at this one metric and like we talked to customers, we looked at like where they got stuck in the flow of planning their day for the first time and just iterated the product in really small ways, like changing copy to like fundamentally changing how you can add integrations to our product to make that process smoother. And we were able to see like a 20% increase in the the percentage of people who started a trial to those who actually planned their day for the first time. So for us, that's like the real critical conversion point that we we focus on in terms of metrics. How do you make sure, you know, that correlation means causation? I will make an example. Like somebody's watching product metrics. They see that people who visited settings page are very likely to stay like that. There is correlation there. And what they try to do in their onboarding sequence, for example, is they try to drive people to the settings page. It does not necessarily mean that's going to make them succeed. How do you know that planning that first day is, you know, the, the key thing? And it, Slack comes to mind with their famous, like, 10,000 messages, you know, and uh, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Um, and to be more specific, it's like if we get someone to plan their day, like, four times, it's, like, almost a guarantee that they will upgrade to paid, right? So there is mm-hmm. that. But the way the way we think about it is... Uh, first, it's like we look at just like the retention curve, right? And every retention curve always looks like it starts up high, it's going to fall down, and then hopefully, if you have a good product, it's going to flatten and maybe kind of turn up at the end, right? And this kind of planning your day for the first time or coming back that first time is that big inflection point in the curve at the very beginning of our curve, right? And so it's much harder to control and measure and iterate on all of the stuff like seven and 14 days out. You need like 14, day, 14 days of data to experiment. But to, to improve something that happens on the first day, you only need one day to iterate and see if it's improving, right? And so that's why we kind of focused on that because we figured like if we can bring that data point up the y-axis, then the whole retention curve like slides up, if that makes sense. So that's that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is it's it's not that I don't think it's that hard. It's like, is a settings page like the core experience of your product? Is that where people are like, I pay for a settings page? Nobody pays for a settings page. It's like, why do people like what is the problem your product solves? The product our problem the problem our product solves is that it helps you plan your day. So if you get people to engage with that feature and use it effectively. And how do you determine effectively? For us, it's like they actually finish the process of planning their day. Then that seems like as good as we're going to get in terms of like causation is correlation. And we have, you know, like other things, like if you add an integration, you're probably more likely to stay. But there's lots of people who add integrations just because they want to see what this thing is all about and then never come back, right? So as much as possible, it's like, focusing on that metric that's also obviously uh, tied to the core value of the product. Do you struggle with any of churn down the road? Because we've been so far talking about the you know early days adoption. What does the retention look like in, in long term? If the person stays for a couple months, are they likely to stay for another two years? Or how yeah. does that work? Yeah, for us, we basically see like the like the cohort retention flattens out around like the like the fifth month. So you still have people who 
in those first five months may be experimental or they're still like trying to get it. So in, in that sense, I think we have very like standard kind of prosumer style or, or even like consumer subscription style uh, retention in terms of like what that looks like and what we compare it against. Um, so yeah, that that is a struggle. And um, we don't have, I think, enough years of data to be really sure about it. But we're, we have some confidence that like, for the people who actually stick around, they're going to stick around for a very long time. What's your product analytics slash behavior tracking tool stack? Yeah, so the the big ones that we use are Amplitude and Full Story. Um, so that's yeah. I mean, we have some other stuff in there, like we, you know, we use Intercom and we have some other tools set up. Uh, but the the real core of like the the data and understanding how people are using the product for us happens in in amplitude and and full story. Can you tell us more what kind of uh, reports drive the most value to you? Sure. The biggest ones we focus on on a week to week basis is just kind of looking at the different pieces along our conversion funnel at the kind of start of the week or sorry at the like start of the the funnel. So you know, how many people are starting a trial, what percentage of those people are actually planning their first day, what, like, what does it look like uh, from starting a trial to upgrading. So just looking at the little different segments of the funnel along the way and trying to figure out ways to optimize that is really valuable for us. And then further down funnel, that's where we actually, we still rely a lot on, like, talking to customers in person, on Zoom rather, survey data and like talking to customers on intercom like we still i think we're still at the stage where it feels like the things we learn talking to people and the intuition that we get there is more valuable for figuring out like how do we iterate on the core product mechanics to find product market fit what have been the top struggles when it comes to helping your customers adopt this new behavior well, early on, I think it was like having a freemium tier was like a mistake. And, and we've already talked about that. But basically, you don't get any commitment from the user. And having a freemium tier doesn't always scream like, hey, this is going to be a really valuable way to, to plan your day. So I think actually a lot happens in terms of the product messaging, positioning, and how you kind of prime the user before they actually start using the product for the first time. Like if you can make it clear, like, who it's for, what problem it solves, and why this is going to be worth the money and valuable. Like people will give your product an earnest shot. And when they do that, if it's actually a good product, then you're kind of off to the races. And I think things will work out. But if you don't have that initial motivation for people to care and believe that this is actually going to transform how they work, then uh, it's very hard to get there. How do you make sure you're doing a good job on your like website homepage about at explaining what your product does for the people? Because I find it super challenging for many founders. We're like so short-sighted when it comes to own products so often. That's a good question and something I'm I'm wondering about myself, I think. <laughs> I think what we've tried to do is you know, like the splash page gives you kind of a quick overview of like, okay, like, what does this product look like? What does it maybe do? How does it work? Okay, great. 
And then as soon as you're like, okay, I'm kind of interested in this and I want to actually give it a shot, we have this sort of what we call like a qualification survey. And the purpose of that qualification survey obviously is one to help us qualify the right customers, but also to help them understand how this fits into their workflow, um, what problems it might solve, and also prime them to understand that this thing like will cost money and solve these problems. So actually, I think that the the vast majority of the early user like education, like almost like helping people understand if this is going to be a fit for them happens in that survey for us more than the splash page. And part of that is like the splash page, people can bounce around and do whatever they want, but they're not necessarily going to digest the information in the way you might find helpful or that they would find helpful. And so we really think of that kind of qualification survey as like the very first step of the onboarding in a lot of ways. And a lot of the answers people give there, we use to actually like change and customize what they might see during the actual product onboarding. This is great. It looks like the request access thing plus the survey, it's not a sign of an early product, but rather a thing that that's there to stay. What's your take there? Exactly. I don't see it as a, like, you know, we get a lot of people who will say something like, oh, you're like limiting the number of people who will like sign up for your product. That might be true in some sense, but it actually does a really great job at helping you like find the people who actually care about your product. And that's way more important than just the raw numbers, right? Um, And it also gets people in the right, like, kind of headspace to think about your product. So yeah, I think for us, it's, it's here to stay. And even if you look at other, you know, famous examples of products that have this kind of qualification survey, like Superhuman now recently made it so that, you know, if you, you can fill out that survey and you can skip the onboarding call, right? So like, at some point, you have to, like, it's very hard to build a prosumer business where you onboard every single customer, unless you're charging probably hundreds of dollars a month, right? It's it's not scalable. Um, so figuring out ways to do that in product and using that qualification survey, not just as an annoyance to the customer, but as a way that actually helps them understand and makes the product experience better for them later on, I think is the right way to think about it. I can't wait to check it out after we finish our call. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Do your customer success people just do manual reviews of this? What is the turnaround time between they submitting it and you, you know, approving access or whatever happens? Uh, It's all fully automated at this point. So depending on kind of how you answer the questions, we just parse it on the back end. Oh, that's great. Okay. So there is no There's no human in the loop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, kind of what happened is like in the very first iteration of this, literally every single type form submission came to my inbox. I would read every single one. I would like look the person up on LinkedIn or wherever I could find some information. And I would write them back an email, send them a link to my Calendly. And so like every part of this funnel was once something that we did extremely manually, like like painfully manually. And one step at a time, we sort of automated that and turned it into the product funnel we have now. It was kind of the, like, I guess, do things that don't scale and then figure out like what was important about that, what worked about it, and then turned it into an actual product. Uh, And the funny thing is so much of that was on the like 
pre-product or like the meta product experience more so than the actual core product. Um, and I think that that's the real interesting learning is like you can have like a really good product, like once people are like through all of the things, but if you don't, if the the systems before people actually start using the product aren't effective, it doesn't matter how good your product is further down the funnel. This is amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. This is great. Two ultimate short tips for people who are listening to us when it comes to helping their customers form good habits. One do and one don't. I think the first, I'll, I'll tie these together. The first one is don't just send messages or emails or nudges because you like, because everyone's doing it and saying like, hey, you should use the product, right? Like that's, I think that that's an anti-pattern. I think that the right way to communicate and message your customers is to put yourself in their shoes and see what would I, what would I want to hear if I wanted to be motivated and inspired to use this product? Because uh, the one thing we've consistently found is people who are motivated and inspired to actually use your product, they'll find things. They'll find the most hidden setting. They'll find how to add these integrations. They'll figure out how to pay if they care. So how do you help people actually give a damn about whatever it is that you're building? Um, and I think that that's, yeah, that's the big do and don't. Amazing. Thanks so much. Sure. As we're wrapping up, where can people find your product and yourself personally online? And I know you've prepared a discount for our listeners as well, in case they want to try it. Sure. Yeah. If you want to uh, check out the product, you can do that at uh, sunsama.com, S-U-N-S-A-M-A.com. Uh, and if you want to find me, I'm just ashutosh at sunsama.com. That's A-S-H-U-T-O-S-H. And yeah, if you listen to this podcast and you are excited about using Sunsama, just write in to our support or to me personally, whatever floats your boat. And let us know that you heard about us on, on the podcast, and we will give you free three months of Senzama. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom, and uh, good luck with more successful habit forming for your customers. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Yep. Thanks for listening. If you found the episode useful, please spread the word about this new show on Twitter, mentioning UserList, or leave us a review on iTunes.